And because we believe all that, we meet every Sunday morning right here for the time being at Summit Lakes Middle School, trying to study God's word, understand who God is, understand his will for our life. And we begin a brand new series today that's going to take us through the entire summer uh, at our church, just titled simply Bedtime Stories. And we are going to look at this summer over the next 12 weeks, uh, basically the greatest stories in the Bible, maybe, uh, maybe stories you've heard of, maybe stories you haven't. Uh, but here's why we're doing this series, and you'll understand this a little more today. As I've uh, spent time studying the New Testament, I've understood in the New Testament there are several times that Jesus speaking, uh, the Apostle Peter speaking, uh, the Apostle Paul speaking, uh, they'll refer to something in the Old Testament to prove uh, a biblical point. And if, if you're reading it and you don't know what they're talking about, you can't really understand even what the New Testament is saying. And as I thought about our church, we have so many people in our church that are brand new to church. Uh, we have so many people in church who maybe have been in church all their life. But I thought, you know, what better time than the summer, the very first summer uh, of our church's existence to just go through the Bible kind of cover to cover and look at the greatest stories in the history of the Bible. Some of these stories you're going to be very familiar with. Some you might not know anything about. But I think by the time we get done this summer, you'll have a real good grasp on the greatest stories in the Bible and what they mean to you spiritually and how you can find Jesus in the midst of all of them. We're going to start today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. That's a New Testament book. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. Uh, they're going to pass out Bibles. If you just forgot yours and didn't bring it today, they can give you one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can take this. This is yours to keep. Put your name in the front. If you're just using it for today, throw it on the table when you leave. But we're going to be reading a lot of Bible today because we're going to read a Bible story. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, and we're going to answer a few questions about, uh, about our story today. And today we're going to talk about Noah's Ark, maybe something you're familiar with, maybe you're, something you're not familiar with. But we're going to look at it not so we can know the story, but so that we can understand spiritually what the biblical content of Noah's Ark means to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, um, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's explaining to them something that happened in Old Testament Israeli history. And he says this about everything that's written in the Old Testament. And here's the question that I want to ask you today. What is the purpose of all the stories in the Bible? Uh, What is the meaning of, you know, Genesis to Malachi? If we were to just jump in and read the Old Testament, what is the spiritual purpose for you and I of all these great stories in the Bible? Is it just so we can know some stuff? Or so that we can, is it so we can become better spiritually? Here's what Paul says about the things in the Old Testament and what we're supposed to learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. He said, these things, if you want to circle those two words in your Bible, these things, you can circle the words, these things, and then just write up in the margin of your Bible somewhere, O period, T period, standing for Old Testament. That's what Paul's saying, these things, the Old Testament things, the stuff in, in the first 39 books of the Bible. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written down, that's why we have these 39 books, as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul said the things in the Old Testament... These great Bible stories that you hear about, that you read about, that you see wonderful paintings about, that you see children's storybooks about. These stories were written so that those of us who are living now can learn them, 
understand spiritually what they're meant to teach us, and it'll help us not basically uh, recreate the same spiritual mistakes that they created in the Old Testament. Now, if you were to look at the year 2012, and if you were to ask me as, as somebody who reads the Bible a lot and has been to a lot of Bible college, uh, Christian, do you think that we live in an age more like the Old Testament or the New Testament? Like the year 2012, do you think it would fit better in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I would say the Old Testament for sure. Because in the Old Testament, we see a lot of life in the Old Testament where some people are trying to live for God, a whole lot of people are trying to live not for God, and most of the people don't care. And we see this continual struggle of people trying to live for God in a world that that doesn't care a whole lot for God. The story of the New Testament is the story of the church exploding. We really don't live in a New Testament world. We live in an Old Testament world. And Jesus, when he was talking about the end times... The times that you and I would live in. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 24. His disciples asked him a question once about the end times. They said, what will it be like at the end of the world? What will it be like at the end of the world? And his answer is an entire chapter long, all of Matthew chapter 24. But in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and 39, Jesus said the end of the world is going to be like, and he brought up the story of Noah and the flood. He said the end of the world is going to be like very much what it was like when Noah was around. Now, here's the thought. If we are people who like to study what Jesus says, and we love Jesus, and we want to live for Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, you need to know that in the end times, things are going to be a lot like they were in the days of Noah, then we have to know what the days of Noah were like. We have to know exactly what happened in the days of Noah or we can't know how to live for Jesus the way he wants us to. So here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 37 and, uh, and 38 and 39. The disciples said, what's it going to be like in the end times? And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's the very end of the world. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man, the end of the world, will be just like it was in Noah's day. If we want to know what the end of the world will be like, if we want to know how to live for Jesus, we have to understand who Noah is, what happened to Noah, what happened in the days of Noah, and we have to make sure, according to First Corinthians chapter 10, that we aren't repeating the same mistakes that they, that they made in Genesis chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 now, the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and we begin our 11-week sermon series on bedtime stories, the greatest tales of the Bible retold. Man, if you are brand new to church, I want to challenge you. If you're in town, be here on a Sunday morning. If you're not in town, check it out on video later sometime during the week because you're going to learn a lot of Bible this summer. Uh, if, you are, if you've been in church your entire life, like many of us in here have, I want you to listen with an adult ear. I want you to listen with a new ear. And don't think about the stories you heard in Sunday school when you were a kid. Think about how this applies to you now as an adult and learn something spiritually. We're going to read this morning all of Genesis chapter 6, 22 verses, all of Genesis chapter 7, 24 verses, and then we're going to break down what we can learn, should learn, what God wants us to learn through these stories of Noah and the ark. And here's what Genesis 6 says. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. 
and their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. And they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account, or the story, of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. That's kind of like tar. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth is going to perish. But I will establish my covenant. You need to underline that word covenant in your Bible or circle it or highlight it or make it stand out. If you only have sermon notes, write the word covenant on your sermon notes. But I'm going to establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, and keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Chapter 7. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep the various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I'll send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I've made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons Wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the seventh month, on the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, let me give you just one little scientific deal in here. In verse 11 where it says, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. I want you to underline that in your Bible or whatever your Bible says there. If, if you have your Bible, you might just write the word Pangea in there. Uh, if you study in science class, they'll tell you that the world, the world originally was one continent and then it all broke apart. The flood, according to Genesis 7:11, began when the continents from underneath the continents burst forth, which would have created tidal waves I mean, from here to kingdom come, and it also rained. But most of the water and most of the damage came from that breaking apart of the earth's crust when we think one continent 
according to science, became seven and kind of floated away. So I, I just want you to see that. That's the only science note that I'll give. But I want you to see where that matches up with science, that the earth's crust broke apart and shattered into pieces. And then the rain came. Verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every kind of wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah, and they entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female, and every living thing as God commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. It's about 30 feet, 25 to 30 feet. Verse 21. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that were moving along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. And then chapters 8 and 9 tell us about how it receded, when it receded, and what finally happened. But as we look at that story, for some of you it's a story you know and maybe... For the first time, you learned that the flood actually started under the earth and not from rain. But for those of you who are brand new, Jesus said at the end times, it's going to be a lot like it was in Noah's day. And 1 Corinthians 10 says you need to understand the Old Testament so that you can understand what happened then so it doesn't happen to you. What can we understand from the story of Noah? Today I want to show you five things. I'm going to call them spiritual themes that we find within Noah that we find within the story of Noah and the ark, and that according to Jesus, we're going to find at the end of the ages. Uh, As you look through Scripture, we actually find these in every era of historical life that there is. We find these themes repeated, and I'm going to try to be... I I could give a sermon on each of them, but I'm going to try not to do that today. I'm going to try to be brief and just move through some things, uh, and then let you go and study this a little more on your own. Uh, What do we learn within the story of Noah and the ark? The first two I'm going to give you together, and then we're going to go back and look at some scripture. The first two themes that we see is obviously we see the themes of wickedness and righteousness. Uh, And we see these polar opposites of each other. Uh, We see wickedness and we see righteousness. We see a world that's that's as bad as it can possibly be. The word used to describe this world was violent increasingly violent all the time. According to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 6, uh, in verses 1 through 6, uh, in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We are, we are painted with a world that is as evil as you can possibly comprehend it. It is only evil The thoughts are only evil, and it's evil all the time. It's as bad as it can possibly be. Yet on the other hand, we see this guy Noah, who's a good guy, who God looks at his life and he sees a good man who loves God, who's trying to live his life right. And we see this wickedness and righteousness contrasted in verses 8 and 9. 
This is what we read about Noah. Everyone in the world is evil all the time. Only the, their thoughts are only evil all the time, except for Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The, the same thing is said of Mary when God finds Mary to have Jesus in the New Testament. This thought finds favor is, is, is this. God liked Noah. He saw Noah and he liked him. That I like that guy. I like his heart. I like how he lives. I like how he leads his family. This is a good man. The Bible says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says here's the account of he and his family. Now, as I was studying this this week, because the range of wickedness in the human race is so, uh, you know, I mean, I mean it, it, it can be a little bit of wickedness or a lot of wickedness. As I was studying this week, I, I got on the news and I thought, you know, Lord, um, let me find something that happened this week that like everyone in the congregation would agree is just wicked. Like, nobody would do that. Because I could say some things and somebody say, yeah, maybe that's bad, maybe it's not. And I, you know, I thought, Lord, let me, let me find one thing that everyone would agree was wicked. Um, and then as soon as I found it, I thought, Lord, why did you let me see that? And some of you already know, someone, did any of you follow the news this week? Did you hear about the homeless guy in Miami who got so hopped up on LSD that they found him eating the face of another homeless man? According to the news reports in Miami, they shut down, a, you know, I-95 from Miami to Miami Beach because this guy had dragged a homeless man out. And, and they said he was so high on drugs when the cops saw him. So a, a bike rider rode by and saw him eating this guy who was alive. Um, and a bike rider called the cops and the cop came up. And here's this guy leaning over this guy. And he's, according to news reports, he's eating his face. And the guy yells at the guy, stop. And the guy looked up, growled at the police officer and just kept eating the guy. So he fired a shot into him. Nothing. Just kept eating the guy. And he kept firing shots until the guy was dead. I read that and I thought, all right, like clearly everyone would think that's messed up. I mean, that is only evil all the time. Evil as bad as you can possibly get. And, you know, I and, and then I, I went to read more about it and try to find find out a little more about it. And the whole story is, I mean, it's as disturbing as anything that I've ever heard in my life. But then there was another link that I saw that said, uh, man found guilty this week of eating brain. I thought, what? So I clicked on that. And this week on the East Coast, a man was sent to prison who had killed someone, and he ate his heart and his brain after he killed him. And I thought, what in the world is wrong with people? I mean, that is wicked. Everyone in here, hopefully, and if you don't, I'm going to ask you to find another church far away from me, <laughs> would think that those things are wrong. I mean, wickedly wrong. And you would say, you just, you know, we can't have that in our world. That is wrong. We, like on a scale of one to ten, that's a thousand. That's wrong. Wickedness. You know, it, and it's not just the activities of human beings. Some of you have heard about this blasphemy challenge. On the internet, where you can go and film yourself cursing God because Scripture says the only thing that God won't forgive is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So you can go on your webcam and curse God publicly on a, web, on a, on a public forum um, to, so, so you can curse God and curse yourself to an eternity in hell forever. And you look at it and you say, what is wrong with people? You know, in Romans one twenty nine, Paul talks about a world that will grow increasingly wicked. He says this in Romans 1, 29 and 32. He said, wicked people become filled with every kind of wickedness, with evil, with greed, with depravity. 
They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips. They're slanders. They're God-haters. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. They have no fidelity. That means faithfulness. They have no love. They have no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. They're wicked. And they're not only wicked, they're trying to pull as many people into wickedness and sin with them as they can. Second Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4, Paul tells Timothy, a young man, that he's mentoring to become a pastor. Paul's getting ready to die. These will be some of the last words he ever writes. He says, Timothy, you need to know as your ministry increases, man, wickedness is on the increase. And as the world goes on, here's what's going to happen. He says, people will become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good things, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, wickedness. I think we could all look across our world and see what's happening around the globe and say there are a lot of wicked people doing wicked things today that everyone in the world would agree this is wrong. This can't go on. You know, when you truly look at wickedness, if something doesn't stop wickedness, wickedness will destroy everything else in a matter of time. So God had to step in and say, uh, no more of that. But we, then we see within the course of wickedness, there's righteousness. There's people trying to do good. There's people not only trying to do good, there's people actually doing good. You know, every time we close our service here, and some of you are, are sick of hearing me say this, but I talk about the ministries that we support. And I tell our people, hey, you know, every time you give in our offering, the first 12% of what you give leaves this church and goes to support ministries. And we used to actually individually kind of profile ministries that we were supporting. Well, the, the person that sold Danielle and I our house when we moved to Lee Summit, uh, we begged her to come to our church. She lives up north of the river in North Kansas City. Um, but when, when she sold us our house, she said, why are you moving? What are you doing? We said, we think God wants us to come over here and start a new church and gave her the vision for the church, sold us our house. So almost a year later, we started the church and we said, will you come? And she came. She sat in the back row and loved it. And on that day, she heard me talk about one of the ministries we supported as a church, the Coldwater Ministry that feeds hungry children uh, in the Lee Summit area. 556 chronically hungry children in the Lee Summit School District. What does that mean? Kids who are on state support lunches who don't eat except for at school. When they leave school on Friday, they don't eat Friday night. Any meals on Saturday, any meals on Sunday, Monday breakfast. So this organization gives them a backpack. They call it a back snack program that when they leave school on Friday, they take this home. It's all their meals for the weekend. They bring home the bag on Monday and they fill it back up. Currently, even the cold water program that's doing so much is not even feeding half of those kids. There's still a lot more work to be done. And our realtor, when she came, she heard us talking about that. She's only come to our church one time. But she left that day and she sent me an email. She said, I want, as a business person in this community, I want to do something for those kids. How can I help? I connected her to the person, didn't think twice about it until a few weeks ago when I got an email that, that she had put together an entire golf tournament to raise money to feed hungry kids in Lee Summit. Um, and, of course, when we found out about it, we became one of the main sponsors of the tournament because we're all for not just supporting these kids but getting the word out. And I found out yesterday that the tournament made $10,000. Fifty more hungry kids in Lee Summit will eat this year, every weekend of the school year, because somebody got a passion. This, this wasn't our church. This was just our church doing the right thing and somebody saying, hey, I, I want to do that. I want to do that too. See, there are righteous people in our world that are doing good 
things that God looks at and says, I like that. That is a good, good thing. I ate lunch with a man this week who came and heard one of the ministries we supported was in India. And we supported orphan girls in India. He heard about that. He does not go to our church. He's only been to our church once, but he heard that at the offering time. Called me this week, went out to lunch, and he said, my wife and I want to support 12 to 15 girls um, for their entire educational uh, experience. We want to make sure from kindergarten through college they're taken care of. So can you put me in touch with someone so that I can support 12 to 15 of these orphan girls and take care of all their education so they can get up on their feet? See, I think God looks at that and says, I like that. You know, so you got this guy over here who's, who's eating someone's face, and God's like, that's bad. And then you got this person over here who's feeding someone, but not flesh, like food every weekend, and God's like, that's good. And we see still, like we see in Genesis 6, we see this, this conflict of good and, and righteous. And there's a big difference, by the way, between righteous and pious. I want you to write those two words on your, on your sermon notes, righteous and pious. These are my definitions, not Webster's Dictionary. But, you know, I see righteousness as I look through Scripture. Righteous people were always doing good for others. Always. Their lives always made an impact for others. Pious people were like really super spiritual people, but they didn't do anything for anyone but themselves. In the New Testament, we call these Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. They were pious. They would tell you how spiritual they were, but their spirituality didn't help anyone. And I'm not talking about being pious. I read my Bible every day, which is good. Righteous people will read their Bibles every day. I pray every day. Righteous people will pray every day. But righteous people will also serve and they'll help and they'll give and they'll always be thinking about how they can help others. So we see this dichotomy of wickedness and righteousness. And all through Scripture, we see that when righteousness lost the ability to impact the wicked, um, that God would destroy the wicked so the righteous could survive. He did it with the flood. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I look at the United States of America now, and, you know, uh, Billy Graham's daughter said a few years ago, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I heard that quote, and I said, I totally disagree. Because they could find less than 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah that love God. And in America, there are churches in every city that are making an impact in the world. We are not the same. Righteousness still has an impact in this place. And if we will live for God, righteousness can continue to have an impact. So we have these themes of wickedness. We have these themes of righteousness that still exist in our world today. And then we have this theme of judgment in Genesis 6-7. Wicked people, wicked actions have to be judged. Justice has to be served. Someone has to be held accountable. And God said in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 6, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth, the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Now, it's easy to hear that as a skeptic and think, how could God do that? But then you look on modern-day wickedness and you say, there are some people that you can't let just continue to live their life in wickedness. It's just not safe for the world at large. There's got to be some judgment. There's got to be some justice. There's got to be some accountability. And as a matter of fact, you and I live in a world when justice is not served, it kind of tears at us. It kind of eats at us. All of us can think of court cases that we've watched develop or, you know, where we know someone is so clearly guilty and then they get off innocent. We're like, that's not right, Um, you know, on some technicality. That's not right that someone would do something wrong and get away with it. In the same way, we, we, we get upset when justice is not served, when someone does something right, and they're said to have done something wrong. Maybe you heard this week about, uh, about this young man in California. His name was Brian Banks. Brian Banks was a junior in high school, 
just outside of San Francisco, California. He was one of the top prep football players in the country in 2002. He had already, as a junior, received a scholarship offer from USC, was going to go play at USC, uh, and he made out with a girl one day at school, and it kind of embarrassed her, so she claimed that he raped her. She was 14 and he was 16. And he went to a lawyer and said, what do I do? There was no evidence at all linking him to a rape. Um, but his lawyer said to him, you're big and you're black. There's no way you're going to get off. You need to plead guilty. You'll serve less time that way. Um, see, I would have said, you're white and you're stupid, so I'm going to punch you in the throat and find a new attorney. Because that's the dumbest advice they could possibly give him. But he went to jail. He went to jail for six years. And then he's been on probation the last four years. And just a few months ago, this girl contacted him on Facebook and said, it's been tearing at me from the inside. Uh, basically, uh, you know, I'm ready to let the world know you didn't do this. And he met with her, and she admitted, I made the whole thing up. Made the whole thing up. Now, his life, I don't know if it's destroyed, but it, it certainly was hurt. Certainly took a, a different turn in the road. And what I thought is cool is, you, you know, he, he on his probation, he's been working out. He's been staying in shape. I, he's, I guess he's 26 years old now. He's in, he's a phenom, in phenomenal athletic shape. And what I think is real cool is about a dozen NFL teams have invited him to try out, including the Kansas City Chiefs, which I think is cool just to give the kid a shot. But they say, you know, you you look at that and you say, that's not right. That's not right that someone would go to prison for 10 years. And the reason the girl didn't come forward earlier is because the school district had paid her a settlement of $750,000 and she wanted to make sure all that money was gone before she came out and said it was wrong because she was afraid they would take her money away. You see, we hear that and say, that's not right. That's not right. See, we live in a world, we, we, we have a mindset that justice has to be served. Wicked people should be judged. The right thing should be done. People should be treated correctly. And we look at Genesis chapter 6 and we see that God sees people are only wicked all the time. And he says, you know what, I'm going to have to judge these people. I, I can't stand for this. But here's the deal. Technically, um, we have been treated unjustly in kind of the opposite way of Brian Banks. So how so? Brian Banks was innocent, and he was declared guilty. You and I spiritually are guilty, but we've been declared innocent. You say, well, how, you know, how does, how does that work? Because we don't like when justice isn't served correctly. We don't like it when guilty people, when the judge says guilty people are innocent and he's not going to hold it against them and they're not going to have to pay for the crime, we say that's wrong, except in our case. And then we say, you know, I'm spiritually guilty, but God, I, I want you to forgive me. Uh, I, I don't want you to hold it against me. You know, if our lives are judged by God's perfect standard, they, they aren't good enough. Now, you look at it and you say, you know, I'm not like the, the crazy guy in Miami or the crazy guy on the East Coast. But guess what? You're not what God says perfect is either. Matthew 5:48, Jesus said, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. No one can do that. We're all guilty. But God says, even though judgment is coming, I will provide a way for you to escape that. But only if you understand that you have to do it my way because you're not good enough. In Ezra chapter 9, I love this prayer because it's the mindset of someone who understands, I am, imper- I am guilty, but God, I will take your protection so I don't have to endure judgment. In Ezra 9, verses 6 and 7, and in verse 15, this isn't on the screen so I just added this late. Ezra's praying to God, something horrible has just happened, and here's how he prays. And I I pray a lot of times like this. Ezra says, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to even lift up my face to you. For my sin is piled higher than my head, and my guilt has reached the heavens. 
From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are just. You always do the right thing. We come before you in guilt, though in such a condition, none of us can even stand in your presence. Ezra says, God, like, I don't even deserve to ask for this, but God, would you spare me the judgment that I deserve? Because in the wickedness, righteousness category, I'm not where I need to be spiritually, but God, I don't want you to judge me like I'm wicked. Well, in Noah's story, we see one of the greatest themes in the Bible. We see the theme of salvation. And we see that even when a wicked generation is judged, and they are, and they always are, we see that God provides protection. Protection. You need to write that word down, protection. He provides protection for those who are willing to accept it. Now, I find this really, really interesting. Um, Both the righteous, in Genesis chapter 6, both the righteous, the good guys, and the wicked, um, the bad guys, were subject to judgment. Both of them were subject to judgment, but one group survived the judgment. You say, Christian, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Noah didn't escape, and I put this on your notes so you'd see it exactly as I had it written. Noah didn't escape the realm of judgment. You say, what does that mean? That means it didn't not rain at Noah's house. Hey, Noah, you're a good dude, so it's going to rain everywhere, but just you're cool. I'll like make sure your house doesn't get wet. He didn't escape the realm of judgment. His stuff got washed away too, but he escaped the wrath of judgment. Which meant God said, I'm going to judge, but I'm going to, pre- I'm going to prepare salvation for you. Judgment is coming, but you can escape it if you do this my way, if you get in the boat that I prepare for you. What was the boat? It, it was the ark. You see, even righteous people, even good people, even the good guys who are raising money to feed hungry kids, even the good guys who are paying to educate kids in India, even the people who do the best deeds in the world in time of judgment, they still need an ark. You've got to do it God's way because the good guy's house still gets rained on. Your good guy, your good deeds are not enough to protect your house when the flood comes. You've got to go God's way. And I think about, you know, the, the first person that I ever had the honor to tell about Jesus so that they would become a Christian was in high school, my very best friend Todd. Uh, and my friend Todd was a lot of, was was like probably a lot of you or like a lot of people that you knew. Uh, I was the kid that was raised in church. Um, but you know, you, you hear people who said they had drug problems and then they found Jesus. The only drug problem I had is that I got drugged to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and I did Bible quizzing and whatever. You know, I mean, I, it, it was like my dad wouldn't let me miss the church on the Super Bowl. I mean, who doesn't let their kid miss church for the Super Bowl? I mean, we went to church. I was raised in church. And you know what? As a churched kid, as a Christian kid, as someone who asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and save me, who knew he was going to heaven, I cussed more. I, I, I lived a worse life than my best friend Todd, who was just like the Boy Scout. He's perfect. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't cuss. He got good grades. I mean, he was just, he, he was much friendlier than, I mean, you know, he's so humble. I mean, he's like the perfect guy, but he had zero experience spiritually with God. And I'll never forget when I went to talk to him about becoming a Christian, I, you know, I asked the only question that I knew how to ask that they taught me at Fellowship of Christian Athletes Camp. I said, Todd, if you died today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Um, and he said, I think I'd go to heaven. And I said, why? And he said, because I'm a pretty good guy. And he was. I mean, if anyone deserved to escape the judgment and go to heaven his own way, it was Todd. 
He was the best guy I've ever known. But I said, Todd, what if I had told you that the Bible said that your good isn't good enough? And that when judgment comes, you've got to, you've got to go God's way. And his name is Jesus. He said, then I would want to hear more about that. And over the course of a few weeks, he decided to take his good and say, I, I'm not going to trust in my good. I'm going to trust in Jesus. And he gave his life to Jesus. And today he's a Christian and he married an awesome Christian girl and they've got awesome kids. He's a Ph.D. now who teaches economics at the University of Indiana. Um, he's just a great guy. But he's somebody that if it wasn't going to rain on anyone's house, it wasn't going to rain on Todd's house. If it wasn't going to rain on anyone's house, it wasn't going to rain on Noah's house. But God said, Noah, sorry, the judgment's coming. You can escape the judgment, but only my way. And he provided salvation. Even the good guys need salvation. Even the good guys need an ark. And the ark's name in our time is Jesus. And this isn't written on your sermon R. There's no blank for this, but you should write the name Jesus on your sermon R. Because the Bible said there's no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. That's what Matthew 24, when Jesus in Matthew 24, when the disciples say, what's it going to be like at the end of the world? Jesus said, it's, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. There's going to be horrible judgment and wickedness is going to be wiped away. And even the good things that people are going to do is going to be wiped away. And there's only going to be one way to be safe. And I'm it. And I just hope people recognize that. That's what Jesus said in Noah's day. He had this big boat and everyone saw it. No one recognized this was the answer. And Jesus said it's going to be the same way that I'm here and I'm available and anyone can have forgiveness and salvation through me. Anyone can be saved from the judgment through me. But most people are, are just going to ignore it. They're not going to do anything with it. That's why Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many go through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus said, I, I am the answer. And everyone can come on board who wants to come on board. In Acts 4.12, the disciples told the people of Israel, salvation, here's that word, salvation, is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Listen, salvation in Genesis 6 was only found through the ark. Get on the ark and you're safe. Judgment's coming, but if you're on the ark, you're safe. Jesus said in the end times, judgment is coming, but if you're with me, you're safe. You can choose to get on or off. You see, the door is still open today. Because God wants you to come in. Now, one of the interesting things that maybe you didn't pick up in Genesis 6 and 7 is God told Noah and his family to go into the ark seven days before it started raining, and he left the door open for seven days. My firm belief is that anyone on planet Earth who wanted to get on that ark with Noah could have gotten on that ark with Noah for seven days. The door was wide open. Anyone could have come in that wanted to come in. Anyone could have escaped the, the judgment that was coming. Anyone. It was their choice. And nobody wanted on Everybody wanted to do it their way, or they just didn't care, or they didn't believe, or they just were too busy doing something else. And you know what? Right now, the door of salvation is still open in our world. Why? Because Jesus wants people to get on board. In 2 Peter 3, 6 through 9, Peter is teaching about the flood. Again, why do we need to know these bedtime stories? We can't understand the New Testament without it. So Peter's teaching about Noah's flood, and Peter says, by these waters... The world of that time was deluged. It was destroyed by, that, by the same world that present, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. So first judgment, water, second judgment, fire, being kept for the day of judgment. So we talk about judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It's coming. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the day, with the Lord, 
A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise. You're thinking, well, why hadn't it happened yet? God's going to destroy it again. Why hadn't it happened yet? Peter said, here's the only reason it hasn't happened. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. If you're sitting out there thinking, well, why hadn't God destroyed the world again? Maybe it's because he's waiting on you to get on the ark. And then once you're on the ark, he can go on to your neighbor or your husband or your wife or your kids. The the only reason is because God wants more people to get on the ark. And then there's this fifth theme that's a promise. And really, I should end the message right now, but you can't finish talking about knowing the ark without reading Genesis 9, 8 through 16. Because we saw that God, I had to write that word covenant down. The word covenant means promise. God told Noah this has happened. But Noah, I'm never going to do this again. You're going to be safe. And then, he, and then he basically said, Noah, I'll never destroy the world again like this. And I'll always remember that I love people and want them to have time before being destroyed. Where is that? Genesis 9, 8 through 16. Some of you are going to read something. A lot of you know this. Some of you, it's the very first time you're going to hear this. You'll never look at this the same way. Genesis 8, God said to Noah and his sons. Genesis 9, verse 8. I'm sorry. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That's us. All of us came from these four families. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I'll establish my promise with you, my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, here's the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you. And every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow. Sort of that word. God said, I'll set my rainbow in the clouds. And the rainbow will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all of life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. And I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. That's you and me. God says, every time that there's a rainbow in the cloud, I'll see it and I'll remember that I want every person in mankind to get on the ark. I don't want them to be destroyed. Wickedness has to be judged. We all agree wickedness has to be held accountable. But God says, I... Man, I want to make sure people have an opportunity at salvation. You know, there's such a cool thing about this rainbow. You know, on, uh, on grand opening Sunday this year, um, we didn't know who was going to come and who wasn't going to come. You know, as a church, I mean, with this dream that we were supposed to start a church, and we really felt like we were supposed to impact Lee Summit and Cass County. And we had s- several friends from Kansas who were helping us and called to the mission. But the truth was we didn't know who was going to be here. Uh, we had our very first ever Sunday morning service a year ago this weekend, June 5th. We had it at the Harris Park Community Center, and we had that day about 60 adults. I mean, that was all that we had, dreaming this dream to start a church. So you can imagine, I didn't sleep much the night before. I mean, I had sold my house, moved over to a new community, really no job, just praying that God would allow people to come. And on that Sunday morning, I wake up, and it's storming like crazy. Oh, man, it's raining. Nobody's going to come 
you know, was I really supposed to start a church? You know, did God really call me or did I just get really excited one day or did I just eat some like bad Mexican and it flipped me out? I mean, you know, did I hear right? I mean, you know, was I really supposed to do this? And I had been praying. My prayer the whole time through this process was what Elisha asked of Elijah. Elijah said, what do you want? Tell me, I'll give you anything you want. And Elijah said, Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit. He basically said, I've seen all the ministry you've done, and I, I want to do twice as much. Pray that God will give me a double portion. So I pray, I mean, for the last like six or seven years, I pray this all the time. God, give me a double portion of your spirit to do ministry in my generation. And we're in here setting all this stuff up, and somebody goes, Christian, you've got to see this. And I said, what? He said, come outside. So I raced to the back door, and here's what, oh, gosh, you can even see it on the screen. Ah, I raced to the back door. Here's a picture on grand opening. You can barely see it. I need to send this out in an email. There is, you can barely see kind of the yellow highlight above this tree, there's a massive double rainbow arching right over Summit Lakes Middle School. Grand opening Sunday morning. And somebody took this picture of me looking at this double rainbow that you can't even see there, but I promise you it was there. Danielle, email this picture out so everybody doesn't think I'm a liar. Can you see it from out there? I can't see it from here. Yeah, I can't, I can't see it. But it's there, a double rainbow. So I'm looking, and I'm, I'm looking at that, and it is so dark now. You can turn this back on. Um, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at that rainbow, and here's what I'm thinking. Because of the promise. God said when, when the rainbow's in the clouds, he didn't say you'll see the rainbow, remember. He said I'll see the rainbow, remember. So every time I see a rainbow, I know that God, wherever he is, is looking at it. And I always look up and think, man, if that rainbow wasn't there, maybe, just maybe, you could look into the face of God. Because you know when there's one, he's looking at it according to the Bible. And it just reminded me, Christian, I'm here. I'm with you. And the only reason I want you to do this is because we've got to get more people in the ark. Because judgment one day is coming. And as a church, we need to let people in this community know the door is still open. God is still here. Jesus loves you. And by faith, you can come to him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name right now. And God, I just thank you as a, uh, as a Christian. I thank you for Matthew 24, where you said, hey, if you want to know what it's going to be like in the end times, go check out what happened with Noah. And I thank you for Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, which kind of show us these themes that we so clearly understand, that in a world there's wickedness, there's righteousness. We get that. There's judgment. There has to be judgment. The world would run amok if there wasn't judgment. Uh, but, Lord, we see that the judgment on the, on the big wickedness that we see is also the judgment on just the good enough here. And the only thing that is not judged are people who get on the ark and they're protected from judgment. And Jesus said, I am the ark. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am where salvation comes from. So I pray for this group of men and women who are here today. I pray for those who will watch through video. Uh, one day on their computer. And God, my prayer right now is that people in here will realize a couple things. One, God, I pray that people in here who are living a life right now that you would consider wicked would drop that, would leave that, and would run to you and give their life to Jesus. Lord, I pray today that uh, the Christians who are in here, Lord, there's a lot of Christians in this room that still have a lot of wickedness in their life. And the truth is, they're smart enough to get on the ark, but they kind of brought all their wickedness with them. A lot of things that shouldn't be there. God, I pray that you'll convict them, that uh, 
if they're going to get on the ark of Jesus, should probably leave all their wickedness behind. And then, God, I pray that, uh, that you would convince those people who are here this morning that are good people, really are good people, much better than most in the world, that their good is not good enough, but that they need Jesus too. You desire to rescue them, but they've got to do it your way. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, if you are in here today, and today you need to get on the ark that is Jesus. Judgment is coming. It's come once, it'll come again. If you want to be saved from that judgment, the door is still open for you. The promise still stands for you. I just want you to pray this prayer. If you've never done this before, and if you stand outside the ark, kind of looking at it, trying to figure out whether or not you want to get on it, today is the day to give your heart and your life to Jesus. And just pray this prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You just pray it in your heart. Dear God, today, I pray that you will save me from the judgment. Forgive me for the wicked things that I have done. And help me now to live for you. Begin to change me from the inside out. But most of all, keep me on the ark of safety. Because today I choose Jesus. And I will try to follow him. And when I mess up, I'll try to get back up and follow him again. And I'll try to be righteous in this world. I understand my good is not good enough. So I choose your plan for my life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just prayed that prayer with me today, would you just slip your hand up quietly, just quietly and quickly. Christian, I prayed with you today. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Now, for the rest of you, heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. Here's a prayer that I want to pray for the remainder of you. And I want you to be honest today. If you're a Christian, you live on the ark. Your eternity is secure from judgment. But you still have some wickedness in your life. Today is the day to repent of that, which means to turn away from it. And to give it all to Jesus so we can be righteous in this community and in this generation. If that's you, pray this prayer. Right now, just in your heart, dear God. Today, the garbage in my life. I throw it off the ark. I want to remain close to you, Jesus. But I want to live my life your way. Forgive me for taking your salvation. But living my Christian life on my terms forgive me Lord change my life remove the wickedness now God as a church I pray that you give us men and women who not only live in the safety of Jesus but who live with the mission to see others brought on the ark and God I thank you for that rainbow in the sky that really those two rainbows on the sky September 18th 2011 the morning we started this church that reminded us that you still remember there's people in this community that need to get on the ark. You love them, and it's still open for them. God, we love you. Wesley sings in Jesus' name today, and everyone said together, amen. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If